Hi, and welcome to another episode of What I Wish I'd Known, the Google Partners Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Langsher. I'm a scientist by inclination and training, having done a few degrees and worked in the scientific field for many years before I got bit by the digital marketing and the data bug. I'm sharing that little tidbit with you because as a scientist, I was trained to write in the most economical style possible. Data goes up front, verify the facts and references, get to your interpretations and conclusions, and do all this with a minimum of fluff or rhetorical flourishes. Great discipline for a scientist, but not so good if you're working in the marketing space and you need your copy to snap, crackle, and pop. So you'll understand why I've always been impressed at the skill and the gifts possessed by great copywriters. They're able to craft compelling prose that sparkles, engages, and most importantly, converts. The good news is that like many skills, good writing is one that can be learned. And if you're going to spend time learning something, then my general take on it is that you should learn from one of the best teachers that you could possibly find. And in this case, that teacher is Joanna Weeb, founder of Copy Hackers, a highly sought after conversion copywriter who has worked with clients as diverse as brick and mortar stalwart Tesco, the digital native Nectar Sleep. She's a sought-after speaker the world over for her insight and expertise on what it takes to draft copy that converts, and we are so, so fortunate to have her as our guest today. Welcome to the Google Partners Podcast, Joanna. Thank you for having me here, Alex. I'll try to live up to that nice intro. I'm really happy to have you here because I think this is going to be one of those uh, discussions that really is the junction point between something that's really strategic, but it's tactical and it's doable and there'll be a ton of learning for our listeners. So I'm, I'm stoked to have this conversation with you. Cool. Me too. But before we begin, maybe Joanna, can you give us a little bit about your backstory? Like, how did you become a copy hacker? What's the story? Sure. So I was an English major. <laughs> so I was like, oh, what are you going to do? So then I went to law school for a day and was like, not that. I'm not going <laughs> to do that thing. I really liked taking the LSAT and I realized I wanted to do the tests more than I wanted to become a lawyer. So um, I was kind of left at this place where I had, you know, dropped out of law school the first day. And I actually deferred it till the next year because stuff was going on. But I was pretty sure I wasn't going back. So I was like, well, what do I, <laughs> what do I do? So I took a couple months, actually, for the first time in my life at the age of 22 or whatever. I took some time to relax, I guess, and just let myself think about what I might want to do. And while that was happening, I had a friend who worked at a marketing agency. And she's like, well, we're looking for a creative writer. And I was like, ooh, fun. Mm -hmm. So I applied and got the job and that was cool. But I started it not knowing what marketing even was. Like I remember she and I sat down for coffee before I applied and I was like, okay, but what is marketing? And she's like telling me things that are like using words like market. And I'm an English major. So I'm like, oh, is it like an audience? And so we're trying to figure out how to teach me what marketing is so I can apply for this job. Anyway, so I started with very little experience, which is good in many ways because there weren't any real bad habits to break. But then bad in that I had so much to learn. So I learned everything, you know, on the job in an agency, which is a great way to learn oh, how yeah. to do this kind of stuff. You're working constantly and you're getting paid nothing. So the hunger is real. <laughs> um, I call it deep end learning. Like you're thrown into the deep yeah. end and you just either sink or swim. And yeah. 
And if you make it through that, you really come out with some great learning life lessons. Completely. And while I was, you know, learning all sorts of things about marketing businesses uh, with B2B in particular, I started to get kind of a little, you know, disillusioned about what the point was. Not like, oh, what's the great purpose in life? But like, what was the point of the taglines I would come up with? Or, you know, website copy that never really felt like it was doing anything more than acting like an online brochure. And this was 15 years ago, which was ultimately the best you could hope for most businesses putting their website together for the first time ever at the beginning of the 2000s. Um, And so there was a sense that everything was just like an online brochure. And I, but I was just really kind of dissatisfied. And then I was looking at this job over at Intuit, the tech company, because they had an office in Edmonton where I live at the time. And so I applied for that and I got that. And that was where I started to see that great copy, things that I hadn't learned in a creative environment. Not that I'd learned bad things in the creative environment, but I hadn't learned that copy is supposed to move people to say yes to something. I didn't know that. So I thank Mm. God Intuit hired me anyway. And I was like immediately absorbed in this culture of testing and experimentation. And that was, you know, it was about 2005 or six and the startup scene was a pretty cool thing too. And I was starting to pay more attention to like life in the hacker news world. I think hacker news was kind of still in its infancy at the time, but I started to get really absorbed in the idea of measuring the work that I did. And as soon as I started trying to measure it based on, did it generate more leads? Did it get more clicks, more opens, whatever that thing might be? Did it actually turn more leads into paying customers? Did it bring them back? Did it increase average order value? When we could start measuring that, that kind of frustration, I felt just completely vanished. And I was like, oh, (laughs) oh, now I know what it's supposed to do. Like you can actually use words like just words, like words that are available to us all the time for free. You can use them to move people to get the thing that they want to get, to connect them to the value that they're seeking. I never saw it as sales early on. I just, I wasn't part of the sales group, so I never saw it that way. But then as time went on, I started to realize that, yeah, copy is your online salesperson and you can absolutely optimize that online salesperson so that it sells constantly. And that scale. So that's how I got where I am. Well, I think that's, that's, you know, one of these kind of classic backstories about trying something and then trying something else and then seeing that you like it and then following it deeper and then suddenly a career, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is great. And I think it's also a good segue to my next question, which is, you know, how would you define copy hacking? What is copy hacking to you and, and why do we use that term? Yeah. Okay. So for the the background on copy hacking as a term. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty lightly on the edges involved in the Hacker News community eight years ago, something like that. And I worked with this gentleman named Sharif Bichet. He was a active, an active poster to Hacker News. And so he did like an ask, or I think it was a show HN, this new website he'd put together for his uh, solution for engineers. And he was like, so what do you guys think? And I wrote back with this PowerPoint deck that I'd put together of like the things I would do differently with his copy. And so he was evidently super happy with that because later he went and posted this really amazing post on Hacker News about how much he loved the community. And he he used that PowerPoint that I sent him as like 
you know, the center of his thesis, right? Like it was like, look, Hacker News community is awesome. People give so much. Here's an example. And so my inbox just filled right up with requests for me to help other people. Um, And eventually I was like, well, there are like 50 people asking for help here and I'd love to do it, but I don't know that I can. So people were like, well, why don't you just write an ebook or something like do something to teach us? And I was like, that's not a bad idea. So I wrote a book, but it turned into a series of four ebooks ultimately. And it was called Copy for Hackers because it was meant for the hacker news community. So Copy for Hackers. And then we went to have it designed. Um, and that was, I believe that was when the four just kind of vanished and it was left with just Copy Hackers on the top of this book. And I was like, oh, okay, I can probably buy copyhackers.com. And I did. And that was where it started from. And so it wasn't initially supposed to be like anything more than here's some ebooks to teach hackers. But over time now it's turned into, yeah, copy hacking as a sort of um, way to discuss copy that you iterate on and test frequently. So you're always using data to drive, quote unquote, copy hacking and then to measure it as well. Well, Joanna... As you know, the premise for the podcast is what you wish you'd known. And so my question to you is, you know, what would be the top strategically tactical actions that you would tell your younger Joanna self about becoming a better online writer and copy hacker? A good handful of things. Um, And thankfully, I teach copywriters and startups how to, you know, write copy. So um, over time, I've kind of whittled down a list of things that would have been game-changing for me if I'd started out knowing this. At the agency, when I first started as a creative writer, if I'd known these things, right. they wouldn't have wanted so, to let me go. I'm sure of it. So so this is, this, is, this is the distilled essence of the last 10, 15 years of your work. <laughs> yes. Oh my yes. God, get ready, people. Yeah, here you go. Um, no, the first one is definitely like, where do you start writing? Like, where do messages come from? And so um, that's a question that you need to be asking when you sit down to write copy. Where does this even come from? Most of us think it comes from our heads, or you just sit there and you think about the product, and then you try to write about it, which if anybody has ever tried that, it's a disaster, right? It, it's it never, it never works out. You feel terrible about it the whole time. It's always too creative, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, the first thing I would tell my younger self is to swipe the vast majority of your copy. I mean, vast majority, like 90, 95% of your copy from quote unquote voice of customer data. So data that the customer shares with you. And that data is, of course, things like uh, their pains that they have, the problems they've experienced, the solutions they've been trying, what's worked and not worked for them, what they really wish were true in their lives. And then what happens with the product when they use it, the good, the bad, the ugly, who gets in the way of them using it, all of the things that customers tell us. You listen to it, but you don't summarize it. Now, a lot of people are already like, yeah, I do. I totally listen to my customers. And they always say they want to save time. And I'm like, stop. (laughs) You just summarized it. Don't summarize it. Take the things exactly as they say them and try experiment with those on the page or in the email. So I'm not even exaggerating when I say the almost 100% of your page can and should be written by what you swipe from what customers tell you. Um, So 
So are you doing that? Are you doing that because the language that customers are using is a, is a more accurate reflection of how they perceive your product or service? Well, I think reflection is a key word there. Absolutely. Because the reflection is really like we want our customer to see him or herself in our copy. Like when they look at the page, they don't see your product because as we all know, they're not buying your product. They're buying, as everybody's heard, a better version of themselves. But what does that really look like on the page? That really looks like them reading your copy and seeing, oh, wow, like that's exactly, I feel exactly that way. Like we had an example, um, we worked with a company called Drasipi, this was a couple years ago, and they were a clothing service company that would like match you with the right clothes for your body type. And I think the control headline was something like, find clothes you'll love or something like that. And we we're like, okay. Um, so we went and listened to voice of customer data, like what their ideal customer was saying to describe their pains, their problems, and the things that Drasipi was supposed to be solving for them. So um, when we went and listened to how they spoke about themselves and their problems in forums and things like that, it had, they would never say something like, I just want to find clothes I love. Like they wouldn't say that. They'd say, oh my goodness, like my bum is really too big for the average jeans. What am I supposed to do? And so we took that language and we put it in the headline. Instead, we tested that headline. It was, uh, I think the headline we tested, which you can't do this for everybody, but this is a pretty uh, vivid example. The headline was uh, big bum, thick waist, not so perky boobs, question mark. And then we had the control body copy below it with show me outfits I love as the CTA. And that dramatically outperformed the control. And again, you can't do that with every business, but you can do a version of that with every single business where you listen to the real way people really talk about themselves and their problems and what they're looking for from you and put that on the page and they'll see themselves in it much better. So that's the point with that. And of course, going out and finding that voice of customer data, one part is interviewing, which almost every tech company on the planet okay, already I'm, knows. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to interrupt you here because I, I want to ask that question about where you find voice of customer data. So oh, okay. I definitely want to get there. But okay. before, I, before we do that, my first question is based on that last one. If you are really reflecting the voice of the customer, as you've just said, and that, and that example is great because... I got to believe that in sometimes the that voice may be directly contradicting uh, what a brand manager uh, wants to portray as their brand values and and maybe their audience and and their ideal customer and they've identified them. I mean, there might be some inherent conflict coming in there and saying, well, I, I know that you want to talk about it this way, but this is the language that I see being used. Uh, so first of all, has that happened to you? And B, if it does happen to you, what are some strategies that you could share to give comfort to a brand manager or your client that we got to try this, you know, take a leap of faith with me. I, I know that you might not think it's on brand for me to talk about it this way, but follow me. Yep. Well, exactly. Um, so yes, I definitely run into that frequently. And we test, of course, and that's usually the way that you get it approved to even run the test is, well, guys, we're going to be exposing this to uh, X percentage of your visitors. So the risk is low. And then when it works, then we can discuss from there what to do with it. Do we run a second version of the test that has something, a version of that winning headline that now sounds more 
on brand for you. So we can go through iterations of the test. And if it loses, then perfectly fine. Again, we control or limit the amount of exposure. And then there's, again, less exposure. So less risk. But that said, even still, when we see winning tests that push brand managers in particular out of their comfort zone, generally speaking, that copy will somehow just vanish. It's just, uh, let's not let's not worry about the fact that it increased conversions. We're going to go back to this headline that we all feel safe with. Um, and this is, of course, just dealing with people. Um, mm-hmm. People are just built that way. And if the data won't prove anything to them, I certainly won't say anything that could possibly convince them. So this is the challenge in working with brand managers. And That's why it's often great when we're lucky enough to be brought in to work on projects early, like for startups in particular, like really growth focused ones where like, cool, we found product market fit. Now we're ready to um, identify what our brand voice should be, how we should talk. Instead of having a brand manager do what, God love them. I worked with a lot of brand managers over time, but there is a lot of um, navel gazing, right? right? A lot of like sitting around in a room and figuring things out at a boardroom table instead of listening. Um, So if we get to come in and work on brand voice development, on value proposition, on how we're going to talk, then then it's going to be based on voice of customer data, and then we won't have those problems. Now, again, we will probably never come up with a brand that's like Drasipi, where you can say bum, (laughs) boobs, and things like that on a homepage. And you don't have to either. Like, there's other language you can use. But yeah, it is a struggle to get brand managers to get on board with the idea that Customers talk in a certain way and they want to see themselves on the page. And what you think about your brand isn't the point. Well, what I think is really also important for our listeners here is that as somebody who's built up a reputation for being aces in this space and has a, a, you know, a blue chip client list, even you experience pushback. And, and I'm sure from what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that when that happens, you know, you're, you're not going to run against that wall. If the data doesn't convince them and if they've hired me and I'm not able to convince them, then, you know, that's just the way it is. And I think that's also a very important lesson is that sometimes, you know, just fold the cards, move on. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that I give up without a fight, but it's not a hill to die on ultimately. Right. They're not, if, if like you just said, like we said already, if the data doesn't convince them, if an increase in, customers and leads doesn't convince them, yeah, uh, then it's probably best to move on and work with another client who's more open to actually doing things that are going to work. So let's come back to the other question that I, that I had for you, which is where do you get your your user voice data? I mean, we are, we're very familiar right now with a lot of surveys that pop up during the experience that, and I also understand those are struggling with a lot of people just clicking right through them. So there's a diminution of user voice there, but where are you getting user voice? What's a reliable place for you to look? Uh, and I, I think that kind of classic places, of course, are all the search terms and we've used those for years, but are there others? And yeah, what are they? Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many places and thank God for the internet. <laughs> Social media is destructive in a lot of ways, but then there are places like in Facebook groups where you can go and learn just endless amounts of things about what your customers are thinking and just take their language verbatim and use it. So Facebook group comment mining, uh, like posts and comments go through and just highlight things that sound interesting, that sound like they're said differently, stuff that you wouldn't come up with sitting around a boardroom table. 
uh, stuff that only a customer could really give you insights into, like specific pains that they've had, like here's how it manifests in their lives, that kind of stuff, listening for that in Facebook groups, in Reddits and subreddits, people are very open and unfiltered in these spaces. And that's great. Reddit, no Twitter's doubt. Worse. <laughs> yeah, it's important. Whereas like Twitter, I find unuseful because it is always limiting your characters. So you're constantly self-editing when you use Twitter, and that's not very useful at all. So I don't go there. Amazon review mining, I do go to. And any other review spaces as well. Like So it depends on what you're trying to write copy for. Uh, but Amazon, because they have so many products, anybody who uses like the job to be done methodology knows that like people are hiring other things to do the job they should hire your product for. So if you're doing, if you're selling project management software and people are hiring, quote unquote, hiring a book about project management to do the job your software should do, then you can go and look at reviews for those project management books and uh, see what people are saying about what they expected, what they wanted, what their hopes and dreams were when it came to buying this book, like what motivated them, what still gets in their way, what still isn't working for them, etc. So going through and mining just the stuff that people are sharing online in Facebook groups and Reddit and forums and in other review spaces. Also, obviously, we've mentioned surveys and interviews, because yes, those are always going to be really good things. We're a long answer questions go a long way. And when I'm listening, when I'm researching, I'm researching as a copywriter. I'm not researching as a market researcher. So I'm trying to ask, I may only ask three questions in a survey and they might be all long answer. And a market researcher might be like, uh, that's not how you do it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, wait, um, we just want to get them to actually write out what they're thinking about certain things. So surveys, absolutely. Interviews with a question, even usertesting.com goes a long way to helping me understand like where some gaps are or some assumptions we're making that are questionable for somebody who's reading mm -hmm. the copy. But then my favorite one, this is my very favorite. It's huge. All right. I also don't believe in pop-up surveys anymore. Like they're sadly pretty dead. So what we can do though is use a thank you page survey. So the thank you page is this incredible seducible moment for your new lead or new customer. They've just said yes to you. They've gone through whatever hoops you put them through with forms, with payments, etc., to say yes to you. Most of us then land them on a thank you page that's like, cool, check your inbox. Bye. And it's like this super dead end page where they have like a piece of content. Like now that while you wait for this to come into your inbox, go read about this. But it's still just this dead end page which is really sad because again, it's the seducible moment. They've, your prospect or your new customer is so open to you at that point in ways that they may never be again. So that's a great moment to ask one question. So I like to embed, I put together a type form. I do this for every client and anybody listening should do this too. Go to Typeform or to whatever survey platform you use, as long as it can be embedded into your thank you page put together this one question survey with a long answer space. And the question is, what was going on in your life that brought you to blank today? So what was going on in your life that brought you to sign up to hear about copy hacking today? What was going on in your life that brought you to buy this training today, et cetera, et cetera. But you're just filling that in and don't rephrase it. What was going on in your life that brought you to blank today? We've refined this over time. I refined it when I was working with conversion rate experts. So this is the question. And what's so good about it 
is you do tend to get pretty lengthy answers depending on how much pain brought a person to you or how excited they are. And you can take exactly what they're saying and use it for almost all of your top of funnel and middle of funnel stuff. Like everything that comes before uh, product awareness, you can use answers to this question to discuss. So it's, it's beautiful for writing copy. Well, you heard it here first, everybody. Um, don't mess with the language. And the language is, again, what was going on in your life that brought you to X today? That is really interesting. Uh, I, there's like a bunch of things that I want to ask you about this too, Adriana, but I, you know, in the interest of time, I'm going to maybe move on to your, your next point. Cool. So the other, another thing that I would tell my youngest self is to know what stages of awareness are and then to join the prospect in the stage of awareness that they're in. So we want to consider market sophistication, of course, whenever you're writing copy. So if you've heard like, um, oh, I should always keep my copy short. And we see this with a lot of startups, especially those who are disruptive or who are going in and creating a new category. They think their copy has to be short, but they actually are responsible for uh, educating their prospects about what is even happening with their solution. So um, be careful not to jump straight to, oh, copy should be short. Think first about, okay, how sophisticated is my market? How much do I need to teach them in order to get them to a place where they're ready to say yes to me? And that, once you've got that sorted, then we want to think about your actual prospect, the person who is landing on the page you're writing or who is reading the email you're writing, and what stage of awareness they are in. There are five key stages of awareness. Unaware, pain aware, solution aware, product aware and most aware. So unaware, they might be a prospect, but they haven't felt any pain yet. Down the road, they might feel pain. Fine. Pain aware is, oh my goodness, I feel this pain. Um, I'm in a world where I'm just going through pain, which moves them towards solution where we're like, okay, I got to solve this problem. What are some solutions available to me? What should I be thinking of? Which brings them to discovering your product and learning about the things that are awesome about your product, um, how it could fit into their lives, etc. And then that brings them to most aware. Product aware and most aware are really the only two places where you can expect people to buy from you or to start a trial with you or even to set up a consultation with you. So if someone is, if your visitor is unaware, is pain aware, or is only solution aware, your job is to educate them and move them toward the place of being product aware and then most aware. And so that's where we have like a lot of top of funnel stuff, of course. Uh, where pain aware and solution aware are really top and like top middle of funnel. And then we move them into product aware. But a lot of people, God bless them, a lot of people love to start at like, okay, so I have this product that I want to sell and um, here's how much it's going to sell for. Let's go write a page for that. And we'll see people, and this still happens, where they'll write a headline that's like, save 20% on X product even though the people coming to that page might not even know what X product is yet. But there's like this idea that if you lead with anything that's quote unquote persuasive, like incentives, urgency, scarcity, social proof, mm -hmm. any of that stuff mm -hmm. that we read about in like Cialdini's influence. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you lead with that, then you're good because you're persuasive and you might get a few more clicks than if you didn't, but are they qualified? Are they ready? Are they like 
anxious to buy? Are they salivating? By the time they see your price, are they like, oh, that's affordable for the problem it's solving for me? Or are they like, mm, I don't know if I'm actually going to go through with this trial after all. So we want to identify what stage of awareness the person landing on our page is in mm -hmm. and then move them from that stage slowly and deliberately through all the stages to the point of product and most aware. That's our job. We need to do that before we even start writing a single word. So I want to explore some more with you here. Um, there's a couple of things. So you're, you're developing copy for each stage of that awareness funnel from unaware to a most aware. And I, I love the methodology you outlined there. My question to you is, is this copy change in, in its length or what, what are some of the things that you, you do with the copy at each one of those stages that's kind of at this stage I'm going to I want to have a long copy at this stage I'm going to have shorter bullet point copy or is, or is, is there no hard and fast rules it's basically test 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 yeah so it depends on both sides of it on the sophistication of your market and on your visitors stage of awareness so if you're dealing with a highly sophisticated market like you're selling sweaters okay the world knows what sweaters are. People who are shopping for sweaters know why they're shopping for sweaters. They're really just trying to look for the sweater that's going to X. Now, our job is to figure out what X is. And if it is, uh, they're trying to solve a pain in that they have a Christmas party to go to. They need an ugly Christmas sweater. They need it delivered quickly because they ordered it late, et cetera, et cetera. Then we can start using that information to figure out how long the copy has to go. Now, our job, no matter what, and just like you said this before, like you want to be economical with the words that you use. And that's always going to be the case. Even when you're ready to write longer copy, like when the job requires more words, you still don't do more words for the sake of more words. We're always trying to be as, have as much empathy for our visitor as possible. That means respecting their time, too, and making sure we're not wasting it on some tangent that could have been cut down to three words. That doesn't mean our job is to cut everything down to three words. It's should this be three words and can it still make our prospect feel what they need to feel in order to buy it? So, okay, so we're considering all of the inputs and then writing mm -hmm. the page accordingly. Now, if the market sophistication is high, chances are good. You can go really short and quick with your copy where you're talking more about differentiators, um, just quick hit things that can move them through and match what they really want to realize by the end of the process. If it's low market sophistication, like you've just come out with a brand new way to measure book sales. Okay, this is a brand new way. Nobody knows what to do with it. And uh, data hasn't been quite as good with book sales. It's just been like, here, how many books did you sell? But you're going to go deep on book sales. Then you have to educate your market. And that might mean that you're going to write a lot more copy on a single page where you're like, okay, my visitor arriving on this page about book analytics is pain aware or they're solution aware. So whatever that starting stage of awareness is, then you have to identify, okay, where am I trying to get them to by the time they're at the bottom of this page or the end of this email? And if you're like, well, I want them to buy by the end of the page, I want them not just to sign up for a free trial, but to enter their credit card information. And I know they're starting the page solution aware. Okay, you're going to need longer copy. One, the market is not sophisticated. So you're going to need to spend some time really helping to bring this idea to life for them to overcome objections, to neutralize anxieties, all the things that the rest of the world hasn't done for them because you have no real competitors. So mm -hmm. nobody else has been teaching them. Now it's your job. 
Plus, you want to move them from solution awareness through product awareness all the way to most aware. You, for a low sophisticated market, you can't do that in a couple sentences. For a highly sophisticated market, you might be able to. When you're selling Tylenol and someone's like solution aware that they need a pill, you can very quickly move them toward understanding that Tylenol is the right one for them and here's a coupon code to get it. Cool. Got that in like three sentences. But something like this book analytics thing, solution aware. So I'm aware that there is such a thing as book analytics, but I don't know anything about it. If I want to get them by the end of the page to sign up with their credit card, I have to cover a lot in order to move them through that. And I'll probably end up writing much longer copy than I otherwise would. Does that make sense? Total sense. I'm interested to know, Joanna, if there is any rule or rule of thumb, or is it just a question of testing that if I have longer copy for somebody who's solution aware, because I'm not expecting them to buy, or if I do, I, I know I need to have that long copy. Do you also say, well, look, um, I, I, I'm going to offer both the option to buy and the option to continue down the funnel to become from pain aware to solution aware to most aware? And is that an equally valid outcome for you? And, and what is your kind of ideal customer journey other than, of course, buying as they're moving down the funnel? So ideally, you can move people through a single stage at a time. So if you're writing a landing page, and you know that the person arriving on that landing page is solution aware, then the best that I would recommend you do on that page is try to move them into the beginning of product aware. So if I'm solution aware um, for, again, the book analytics thing, and you want to talk to me about book analytics as a solution, like, yes, you can get great analytics for books. Here's what that looks like. Here's what you should be thinking about. Oh, and by the way, we have a product that does this really well. You could, because you brought them into product awareness, you could get them to get started on a trial at that point or to meet with a consultant or somebody who can talk you through what the solution, what your product itself is all about. Because then if you can just move them to that point and have a CTA that matches where they're at by the time they finish the page, cool. Then now they go into an email funnel that nurtures them forward further, right? Toward most aware, et cetera. If you try to do everything on a single page, yeah. then your copy is always going to be longer. Now, if you have a really convincing page, then brilliant. Then you can actually close more sales at that first point of contact, which is ideal when they're really feeling that pain. So if you're able to sell to somebody in the moment that they need it, then why would you delay that? But if you're not able to sell to them, if it is going to take more time, more finessing, more nurturing, then I'd say break up your, just like you would with a funnel. This is just yeah. funnels that we're talking about, but we're thinking about stages of awareness as we're moving through the funnel. So then if you know that this is a longer sales cycle or that it you know, generally takes about four days before people are because you've got data <laughs> before people are ready to buy, then move them from just do just move them through a single stage of awareness on that initial landing page and then use email to move them the rest of the way. Then, you know, once email has moved them through the product spectrum, once they're product aware and they've moved through really learning everything there is to know that they need to know about your product. Now they're at a most aware stage and now you can land them on a shorter sales page that gets them to buy. Awesome. What's your next point? Oh, my next, I actually have two that are kind of related mm -hmm. to each other. Uh, the first part of it is to use frameworks to shape your page or your email. 
So, and then the second part is formulas. So we're really talking about using frameworks and formulas, which means don't start from scratch ever. So once you've got the voice of customer data, once you know the stage of awareness your visitor is in when they like, let's say land on your landing page, once you know those things and you're ready to start thinking, okay, how do I now position or organize my messages on the page, all this voice of customer data, how do I organize it to make sure that it best convinces? Um, and that's where you want to have a framework, a copywriting framework for the page. And then at the line level, you have formulas. So a common framework is my favorite framework for your actual copy is PAS, which is problem, agitation, solution. So you open with the problem, your prospect in their stage of awareness is feeling, you agitate it with real examples you pulled from voice and customer data, and then you solve it. Yeah. And, um, and by and by agitate, sorry, by agitate, do you mean you you kind of uh, prodded them, or you've you've reconfirmed what their concerns are, or would just want to define agitate? And it could go either way, right? So you, the point here is to get really specific and bring it to life for them. So agitate sounds so negative because we're talking about a problem and then agitating it, yeah. but it can also be like agitating a delightful outcome. So please overlook the word agitate in its negative way. Mm -hmm. um, and you're really just trying to get nice and specific with examples of that pain that they're feeling sometimes, as well as the, the joy that it's keeping them from. So the real like heaven that they want to experience and the hell that you're moving them out of, that's agitation. Okay. And your last one, and S. Then comes solution. Yeah. yeah. And so solution is where you're like, okay, here's things that you may have tried. Here are things you're considering trying really quickly, right? And then breaking down what's wrong with them. So if you are selling QuickBooks and you've got the problem is you're trying to manage your books for your growing business, you can't even think about the idea of using finances to do anything more than just like stay afloat because you're so busy growth is like out of the question so you're agitating with like all the things they're going through and then you're like okay and here's how you've tried solving it you've used an excel spreadsheet or you've used whatever other sheet that you have out there and here's how that's failed you etc etc then we introduce the product and things like that but the pas framework is all about making sure that you are bringing your prospect back to the point at which they are in a good position to choose you. So a lot of us like to dive quickly into offering our solution. Even when people are product or most aware, we like to dive in and say, okay, cool, here you go, 20% off. But they're far more likely to take you up happily on that 20% off offer if you back up and remind them of the problem that first drove them there then you agitate it, and then you solve it with this, oh, and plus you'll get 20% off. Now, you can do that pretty quickly, but sometimes you take a little more time with it. Point being, you don't start a page just by throwing down whatever you feel like or what you see. You go look at someone else's website, and you're like, ooh, I like that. Let's just do what they did. Don't do that. Start with a framework. So PAS is one. Attention, interest, desire, action is another one, and there are a lot out there. Samesies for copywriting mm -hmm. formulas. So if you're writing a headline, write your first draft by yourself, sure. But then go and look at headline formulas. And I have a ridiculously huge post on every copywriting framework and formula ever on copyhackers.com. Okay. So reference that and just go through and write 25 or 50 different versions of that headline just using formulas. Just look at the formulas that are there and start plugging stuff in your copy will be stronger than if you just sit there and 
throw voice of customer data on the page and hope that that's enough. That'll take you a long way, but it won't take you all the way. Joanna, sounds great. We'd love to get an example, if you could, of pulling these three things together. So not just using a voice customer to start off with, but a formula, then using your 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 framework, whichever framework that you want to use, but but building it out. Can you can you give us kind of a, a good example of what that might look like? Sure. So let's say that you are going to write a headline for your page that's like uh, it sells your prospect on the idea that they can save three hours a week. So save three hours a week. That's fine. It's pretty clear. Um, but you've got this voice of customer data that speaks to all of these concerns your prospect has about the possibility that they could even use a solution like yours. Like you keep reading that they feel like tech is beyond them and your solution is techie. Um, or it's a gadget and they feel like they can possibly add another gadget or it's an app and they're like, I don't even have room for another app on my phone. So if you were to say, okay, save three hours with our solution. So in, you were to use a copywriting formula where you saw like the even if principle, which is part of a good number of formulas, even if is in the absence of giving you the actual formula, because there are lots of them that use even if. But the idea with even if is mm -hmm. you have this claim, then you add even if, and then you add their objection after it. So if your claim is save three hours, even if you're not techie, save three hours, even if you have no room left on your phone, save three hours, even if, and you just keep filling that in and come up with the right headline. It's specific. It's juicy. It, it actually like counters an objection that your prospect has. So that's where you could save three hours as a perfectly fine starting point, but it's not as powerful as if you go over, look at formulas and start going like, oh yeah, okay, we could try that in there instead. And now you're pulling together voice of customer data. You're taking things they tell you and you are pushing it into the formulas that have been largely tested over time. Because even if is an attempt to have a statement that was going to resonate with you. And so the, whatever that, that problem might be up front, uh, the resonance of that secondary statement is what draws you in. So yeah, yeah I'd love to save time. And oh yeah, that, but that even if, yeah, well that, that I relate to that even if, okay. Exactly. exactly. And the more you know about your customer, that's where good voice of customer data is important. So listening to actual customers, not people who might be your customer, right. but like real people who purchase products like yours or hired other things to do what yours is supposed to do. Listening to that will open, you will get so much data that you can just plug into so many different formulas. It'll be nuts. But the point is, make sure you're plugging it into formulas. You know, I, I'm not one who's dogmatic. I tend to say, what does the data show me? And let's follow the data. If you look at any direct mail, the, the, it's always long copy, right? And direct mail oh, yeah. is always long copy. And when we're online, we're always being told it's got to be quick. I mean, they're now selling, you know, increments of six and a half seconds on uh, for, for videos and ads. So, you know, the attention spans are shortening. Uh, do you see those two things as being uh, opposing forces or are you perfectly comfortable with long copy even in an attention deficit world? Well, I mean, I think that it's easy for us to all say, yeah, attention spans are shorter than ever, but we're still as interested in ever as ever in 
in things that are interesting. So, um, no direct, no long copy works because it's long. It works because it hooks you because some smart direct response writer has mastered the art and science of the hook and pulls you in hard and then brings it to life with all the things you've been thinking. So we can say, oh, you've only got 6.5 seconds and that's why your YouTube video or your bumper has to be like super short. But if it's dull, it's never going to be interesting anyway. So if you have a 6.5 second period in which to hook someone, then the belief that I would continue to have is that your ideal customer, not the world, because we're not dealing in averages when we're dealing with conversion rate optimization. We're dealing with real people, not some weird summary version of a person who might be the right fit. So 6.5 seconds might be true for the world at large. What does your one reader care about right now? What are they thinking? What's going to hook them? And once you've got them hooked, how do you keep pulling them in where they can spend minute after minute after minute, just being guided deeper and deeper into the story that you're weaving for them to the end that they're like, wow, you get me. That's exactly what I'm going through. How do I get this in my life? So I'm not somebody who would be like, look out for low attention spans outside of the fact that your hook has always been required to be something that grabs them quickly and holds them. That's always been true for people throughout time. These four points so far have been fantastic, uh, Joanna. So I'm wondering how you're going to top this with your last one. I don't know if I'll top it, but I will say um, that one of the things that I wish I had known first thing is that you should be creative at certain parts of your page. So, um, and only those parts. So a lot of people think like, okay, once I've got voice and customer data and I'm using a framework and now I want to add in voice and tone, I want to make sure it sounds like us. So I'm going to just like layer on voice and it's just going to like, my body copy is going to be filled with cutesy things, et cetera, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. that's, we have to, we have to like pull that in. You should be creative or artful in your headlines and your crossheads only. Not in your body copy, not in your CTAs, not in your social proof, like the crossheads that come up, like the actual summary headers that are like introducing a testimonial, not in your screen captions, not in anything but your headlines and crossheads. And when I say creative and artful, I don't mean be over the top. I mean, if you're going to add something that someone would describe as clever or creative, do it only only in your headlines and crossheads. And a crosshead, by the way, a lot of people call it a subhead. It's just a headline that goes down the page, like as you read down a page. So I want, I want to jump in here and ask a question about this. So if we go back to our conversation about brand managers and sometimes being, uh, you know, saying this is uh, not on brand, what would the role of something like humor be? And, and where would you see that playing out in the copy or, or to your point, no, only in the headlines uh, only in the crossheads, uh, your copy has got to be to the point, focused uh, on brand and tone, but, but that's yeah, it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So um, funny is very hard to pull off, right? I don't know that anybody in any part of the organization would argue that you should have more clever anywhere on your page outside of headlines and crossheads once you see it done. Like when you look at Apple, Apple is an extraordinary example of copy done in a 
gorgeous, elegant way that still makes you desperately want to buy the product while looking at the visuals. So no big surprise, Apple knows what they're doing there. And I've actually learned a lot from Apple's copy over time. But when you read it, and I'd encourage anybody to go and take a look, and you'll see that if they are creative at all with their copy, it is only in headlines and crossheads, never in their body copy. They're always very clear in their body copy, like relentlessly focused on clarity at that point. And the thing that hooks you or pulls you in is kind of the cutesy thing. Um, but they don't keep hitting you over the head with voice. I think a lot of people get excited about voice. And so they're like, ooh, let's put it wherever. Like, oh, I love our voice. But then it just comes off as kind of a caricature instead of your character. Right. So the danger is you veer off and and you won't know it until you have. Yeah. And then your prospect will know it because they're like, yeah. it's it's like bad art, right? Like when you notice it, when you see it, bad design, it's everywhere. Like the design just won't let go. Um, that's not good. And the same is true for copy too, right? If the copy is trying so hard to get noticed, it needs to be edited and that copywriter needs to be replaced. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> so, 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 dial it down on the cute seat, uh, unless it's in the, in the headlines of the crossheads. Clarity trumps there. everything. Joanna, this has been outstanding. I, I feel that you've really shared some super practical, super concrete, really clear tips to our listeners. And I've learned a ton in the process as well. And so, I, you know, on a personal level, I just want to say thank you. But for our listeners, I absolutely want to extend our, our thanks as well. If they wanted to contact you because they had follow-up questions, where might they be able to do that? Sure. I am on Twitter at copyhackers with an S. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for being on the podcast, Joanna. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening, everyone. To our listeners, thank you for listening in. I encourage you to check out our back catalog. It's on Google Play. It's on Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. We love your comments. So feel free to share the podcasts or comment on them. We always check those out. If you have any suggestions that you'd like to talk to me about, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at A Langshire. And I look forward to having you join our next podcast when I'll ask our guests about what are the top five things that they wish they'd know. Thank you.